Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. Uh, I woke up this morning to a nice text uh, from a friend in Africa named Nono. And uh, she, uh, some of you remember seeing a picture when I shared of a small kind of, um, well, there were two little sheds in Africa where I preached in. One was more together than the other one. Um, but uh, she, she just texted me to let me know that they're so excited because they're almost finished building a new building. We actually used some of our money from Cedar Home to give towards that project and uh, they're building it out of cinder blocks and so uh, just really nice to hear that and a thank you uh, to you Cedar Home family for investing in, in that. Um, we praise God for the great things he does for his glory and in our lives and at the same time uh, this is reality that all of us know that every single one of us in this room is, is going through a hard time right now or will go through hard times. Some of you are, are going through some really hard stuff right now. Um, you might be going through a divorce in your family, which is very hard, or maybe uh, you're walking through a season of depression, or uh, maybe one of your loved ones has recently been diagnosed with a terminal illness. You're praying for them and, and trying to walk through that with them, or, or maybe you're grieving this week in the death of someone you love. Well, um, whatever you're going through today, as we come to hear what God has to say for us, the Lord wants you and me to know that he has not forgotten about us. Uh, he's with you. He's going to see you through the storm that you may be going through today. And if you put in your, your faith in Christ, then this is what he tells you. He says, this is a quote, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you and I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Isaiah 41.10, that's good news, isn't it? To hear that from God. Um, I talked to somebody on the phone a few days ago who's struggling with uh, some coworkers at work who was giving them a hard time. Uh, the coworkers weren't believers and, and just kind of you know, throwing out arguments like what, what about all the terrible suffering in the world and why does God allow that? And... And... Um, and why God allows suffering in our lives is one of the oldest questions in humanity. And this is the thing, whether you're a Christian, another religion, or atheist, everybody has to deal with the problem, okay? So it's easy to throw it on Christians and say, well, what's your solution? We have a solution in that God suffered for us and with us in Jesus Christ to take it away, right? But... Um, all of us have to answer, what is the solution? How do we deal with this problem eternally? Um, and I think as I was talking to this person about how to respond, they, they asked me for some counsel, and I said, well, this, what we need to do is, is just lovingly share what the Bible says. We don't have to try to be super philosophical or smart, I mean, uh, beyond what the Bible says. This is what the Bible says. The Bible says that the reason for the suffering around of us is actually because the human generation, uh, the human race, since its first generation of Adam and Eve, has chosen to rebel against God, this this God who loves us, instead of to enjoy God. Okay, so the suffering um, in our world is one of the consequences of the rebellion that humanity has brought upon itself. And this includes brokenness and illness and faithlessness. 
and destruction and death. And so while God is in control of everything, the Bible says that humans, we really don't have grounds to blame God for suffering. Because in Genesis 2 to 3, God gave humanity the option not to suffer. Okay? If only we would have been satisfied in knowing God and enjoying God and obeying God. But we, as a human race, were not satisfied with God. And so even though God punished humanity rightly um, with, with all these things, the, the, the brokenness and illness and suffering and death, this is the same God who at the same time made an action plan to forgive us and to take away our suffering. Okay? He put a plan in place to take away our suffering by suffering for us. God made a plan to restore us to friendship with God by being divided from himself, from Father the Son to uh, Father or uh, Jesus the Son, sorry, Father God to Jesus the Son on the cross. And through faith in Jesus, if we trust in this, that, that our suffering has been put onto Jesus eternally, and that he died to it, if we trust in this, we can have eternal life with God and be restored to God. Now, this is kind of the heart of the gospel that we preach um, as the church, that this is the... Uh, this has been given down, this is the deposit that has been given down to the church, this message about the good news of Jesus and his salvation. And in a church like ours where we preach it often, uh, it hit me this week that I want to make sure that to the best of your ability and my ability, we feel the weight of what it cost God to fix our hopeless situation for us. Because this, this gospel message of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection must never become for us this memorized spiel that we shared in non-Christians or just this abstract doctrine that we know about, we hear about, but we don't feel, okay? We, we, we must never take for granted or make light of what God has suffered for us in our place because Jesus paid it all for us. He paid it all for us, and it was horrifying, and in the passage uh, we looked at a few weeks ago, a couple of Greeks looked for Jesus in Jerusalem by uh, trying to set up a meeting with Jesus, and their pursuit of Jesus was a sign that Jesus' time, his hour, had now come to go to the cross, to suffer and die uh, for sinners on the cross. And Jesus said that just like a seed must be buried in the, into the ground and die in order to produce new life, so also he must die in order to give eternal life, in order to give salvation to his church. And he said that if we're his disciples, if we are his followers, if we are his children, then we too must die in order to multiply good fruit for the glory of God. We talked about that uh, uh, two weeks ago. And today what we're going to do is we're going to keep looking at the second half of what Jesus talks about in his conversation with the Jews in Jerusalem. And hopefully we're going to get a better understanding of what it cost God to save us. And hopefully we will respond by worshiping Jesus for that and by being transformed into his likeness in the way that we talk and think and feel and act. 
So um, we're going to look at John chapter 12, verses 20 to 33 today. If you've got a Bible, you can uh, turn it to that. John 12, 20 to 33. Let's ask God as you're turning to that to help us. Lord, we thank you for being so merciful and so gracious toward us. We declare, God, that you are holy and glorious and you are more wonderful than we can comprehend. And we thank you for showing yourself to us and for revealing yourself to us through your Bible, your scripture. And so as we meditate on this part of your scripture today and these words, Holy Spirit, we ask you to teach us. We need you to teach us. We need you to help us grasp what's contained here, and we need you to help us feel what you want us to feel. And so we know that in our human flesh, God, this, this can't happen on our own. We ask you to reach in and help us. Please turn our hearts and our minds to you now, Jesus. Please keep away uh, any demons or evil forces from this property, from our minds right now. Help us to focus on you. We pray this in your powerful name, Jesus. Amen. So we'll start in verse 20, okay, uh, so we can get the context here, and then we'll focus in on verses 27 to 33. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Jesus recognizes that the hour has come for him to suffer and to die for his church. And what's the first sentence he says in verse 27? Now is my soul troubled. Jesus is anticipating the full punishment for our sin that he's going to have to endure in a few days. And he says that his soul is troubled over it. Okay, now this is God talking. And he's troubled. Every sin that we commit is ultimately a sin against God, and it earns a consequence. Every sin, big and little, it earns us death and separation from God. 
And here God is in the flesh, knowing that he has to endure this death, he has to endure this separation that we're responsible for, and he says he's troubled by it. The word troubled here means horrified in Greek. Horrified or filled with revulsion. Jesus considers for a moment the path of agony that's in front of him, and he's filled with horror. The horror that Jesus experiences here is a result of Jesus being fully God and fully man, right? As God, think about this, what's going through his head is Jesus sees the future, the picture clearly. He knows the full dimensions, the full extent of this wrath that he must endure. See, unlike Jesus, we are, we're merely humans, and we can't fully comprehend the severity of God's wrath toward sin. His eternal wrath, it's this idea of infinity and eternity, we kind of get it, but not really. It's beyond our uh, human minds. We know that it's infinitely long, and we know that it's infinitely uh, high and low. It's infinitely deep. It's infinitely huge, but we really can't grasp it. But Jesus did. I think if we could grasp um, the wrath of God that results from sin, if we could grasp it, we might respond more like Jesus did. We might be horrified to commit any offense against God because we would understand fully the suffering and the consequences that that sin brings as God, Jesus knows what he must endure. See, he knows, he knows the physical side of this. He knows that there's this flogging that's awaiting him. He knows that he'll be beaten and mocked and he will be abused. He knows that his, uh, his going to the cross means that these sins of his church must be paid for. He knows that he will bleed. He knows that he will die and that that is the only thing that can take away our sins. He knows that on the cross, all these demonic forces, physical and spiritual, will be there waiting for him to taunt him and to degrade him as he hangs upon the cross. And it says he's troubled by it. He's horrified by it. And so in that, we see the, the, the humanity of Jesus also. Remember just a few passages ago, we saw Jesus weeping. We saw him greatly troubled at the tomb of Lazarus, and now we see Jesus scared about the torture that awaits him. And in his humanity, Jesus wants a way out of this misery. In his humanity, he thinks there must be another way. Is there another way? He wants to escape what is to come. And so he says in verse 27, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. So he's, he's torn between his desire to run from his suffering and his desire to submit to God the Father. His soul is greatly troubled and he's horrified. Application here. Are you and I horrified by the punishment required to atone for our sin? See, most of us know, in this room I'm talking, know that Jesus died for us, but do we take time ever to think about what all that entailed physically and spiritually? 
the eternal physical suffering and the eternal spiritual suffering. We've, we've got to think about Jesus' suffering sometimes. Because only when we better understand this horrific atonement that's required for our sins can we then take sins more seriously in our own lives. See that? See, why aren't we more repulsed by the sins that we do? It's easy for us to uh, look at big sins that we in our minds think are big sins and those are the sinners and those are the people who don't have it together. But when you really read scripture and see lists of what offends God, it should sink really close to home for all of us. Why don't we take our sins more seriously? Well, partly because I don't think we fully understand the punishment that sins require. Um, we understand that it's death, but in our depravity, we don't think about that often. We see the, the juicy worm of temptation, but we don't see the razor-sharp hook that's waiting to yank us into death and destruction if we take it. See, in order to better understand what Jesus has done to save us, Christians, we've got to read the Bible. <laughs> we've got to read the Bible to know what sin is and to know what sin looks like and to know what its consequences are. Because but better understanding sin will greatly help us to avoid it. It will help us to avoid bringing its consequences on us. Helping to know what sin is and what its consequences are helps us avoid bringing death and destruction on ourselves and on others. Better understanding our sin will help us to glorify God by putting this sin in our life to death. <clears throat> I think that any person on planet Earth who does not take sin seriously is a person who cannot possibly take the cross seriously. You can't take the cross seriously. The cross won't mean much to you if you don't understand the severity of your sin, right? Jesus uh, says that, um, that he bears our sin on the cross, and this is the reality, that in our flesh, none of us take our sin as seriously as we should, right? None of us do. None of us do. So this is what we want from this one phrase, that Jesus was troubled by our sin. May we look at Jesus here and see that our sin against God is a massive deal and that our sin requires a massive punishment. May we ask Holy, the Holy Spirit, please help me to be repulsed by sin just like Jesus was. Help me uh, to be repulsed by sin so that I would be freed to obey you, Jesus. Help me to be repulsed by my sin so that I can worship you for what you've done in my place. Because if we make light of sin, we make light of the gospel. Jesus says, now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. So when Jesus is, is torn um, about which direction to go, which way does he go? He says, Father, glorify your name. So once again, Jesus demonstrates that even in his humanity, he is completely obedient. He is completely perfect, even when nobody else in the history of humans ever has been. 
Jesus chooses to submit to God the Father, to embrace God the Father's will for him, knowing full well what that is. And why does he do this? So that God the Father would glorify his name. So that God the Father would glorify his name. That's an interesting thing to say in verse 28. He doesn't say, Jesus doesn't say he's going to endure our punishment because we humans are worthy of being glorified. Because we humans are worthy of being worshipped. He, uh, he doesn't say that. He says that Jesus is going to endure the cross because God is worthy of worship. God should be glorified. All the world should lift up God and see the supremacy of God and enjoy God. That's why Jesus submits to God, and will go to the cross. And after Jesus prays, Father, glorify your name, the Father answers from heaven. He speaks up. Verses 28 to 30 say, Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. So God the Father responds to Jesus from heaven with such a mighty voice that the best way the crowd could describe it is as thunder, okay? Thunder from heaven, and, and other people said it must have been an angel that spoke to him from heaven. And God the Father tells Jesus that he has already glorified his name. That's how he responds to Jesus' prayer to glorify God the Father's name. He says, I've already glorified my name. And in the context here, we can assume he's talking about Jesus' life and ministry. God the Father has glorified his name through Jesus' preaching, his teaching, his obedience to God, his perfection, his miracles. And God the Father promises that he's going to do it again, that he's going to glorify Jesus, or God's name again um, through Jesus' coming death and resurrection. Now, so here we go. In the last passage, it talked about glory. In this passage, it talks about glory. In the next five chapters, it talks a lot about glory. So it begs the question, why are Jesus and God the Father so concerned about God the Father being glorified? Why is that a big deal? And why do we read three times in two verses here about God being glorified? Okay, God's glory is something that in the church we, we talk a lot about, um, and we want to define some of these terms um, glory, God's glory is the fullness of God's perfection and holiness on display for us to see, okay? And to glorify God means that we look to God and exalt him for the glory that he has, okay? It means that we use our worship, we use our, our money, our time, our talents, um, our, our families, all of our resources, everything that we are to point to God and say, he is awesome. He is holy. He is exalted. He is high and lifted up. Now, let's talk about glory. First, we need to know this. God is supremely concerned that he be glorified. You read this all throughout the Bible. You'll read phrases like, 
for my glory or for your name's sake, um, for my name's sake. You'll see all of it. It's all about God's glory. Um, It's of the uttermost importance to God that all of creation sees God as the highest and most excellent being in the universe, okay? That God, God, in fact, he, he exists, one of the, is, he exists to, to, to glorify himself, okay? Now, we might ask, well, that sounds pretty needy to me. Doesn't that make God pretty needy? Doesn't that make God, it sounds self-centered. It sounds egotistical, right? Well, if it were us, it would be, but we're not God, And that leads us to the second point. God is supremely concerned about this. God is supremely concerned that he is glorified because it is right to glorify God above everything else. The reason why God glorifies himself is because it would be wrong for him not to want to glorify himself. It would be wrong if God's primary desire was to glorify sinful creation over and above himself who is perfect and without sin. Our perfect creator must be glorified for the perfect creator that he is. And that's why God's concerned about being glorified because God is righteous. He always does what is right. And so he is supremely concerned about him being glorified. And then third, I want you to remember this, that God... Um, is the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So when God the Father is glorified, Jesus is also glorified. It's one of the main things Jesus tries to pound in our heads through John. The Father and I are one. Okay? To glorify the Father is to glorify Jesus. To glorify Jesus is to glorify God the Father. So as Jesus submits to God the Father's perfect will for him, He glorifies himself, and he does what's going to lead to God being more glorified. So God's glory is of the uttermost importance to the Father, Son, and Spirit. And if we are his disciples who have been saved by him and learning to grow and become like him by the power of the Holy Spirit, then seeing God glorified and being concerned about his glory is going to become increasingly more important to us the longer that we follow God. After Jesus hears God the Father's voice, he tells the crowd that this voice has come for your sake, not for mine. Now you would think just the opposite, right? Who in this passage is the one that is troubled? Jesus, right? You would think that God the Father spoke up here to comfort his son, You'd think that God the Father spoke up to minister to Jesus, who is horrified at the thought of going to the cross. But instead, Jesus says that God the Father spoke from heaven in order to serve whom? The crowd. In order to serve us. Many of whom did not believe in Jesus at that point. So what we see is that even in the midst of all of this talk about God's greatness, God's awesomeness, God being glorified, which is right and good, we see that God, his glory is tied up with a deep love for us at the same time. Um, God is so gracious that even his own glory is connected to our good. See that? God wants us to bring him glory because bringing him glory is what helps us. 
Glorifying God keeps us from death and destruction. Glorifying God allows us to participate in what is right and what is holy and what is good. So when God the Father speaks here, he's, he's saying that, but he's, he's also affirming here that Jesus is God's perfect son. Um, we see this three different times in Jesus' life where the Father audibly speaks, says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. One is the baptism of Jesus, once is the transfiguration of Jesus, and then here in this passage we see it as well. And it's just mind-blowing that God, get this, he's for his glory, but he's also, at the same time, for our good. He's for our salvation. That's why Jesus came. This isn't just Jesus on mission, and God the Father's really mean. It's not what it is. It says God the Father spoke for their good. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all on the same page from Old Testament to New Testament. He should be glorified, and as we glorify him, we are blessed. It's incredible. The hour has now come, Jesus says, for him to be glorified. So he uses this word now several times. Now is the time for Jesus to suffer and die and be resurrected. Now is his soul trouble. Uh, will, uh, now God's glory is going to enter creation and rattle it like never before. That's what's going to happen this coming week is what he says. This place is going to get rattled. And in verse 31 to 33, Jesus tells us three ways that God will be glorified through Jesus' atoning death on the cross. God will be glorified through Jesus' death on the cross. First, Jesus says in verse 31, now is the judgment of this world. So God is glorified through Jesus' death on the cross because the world is now judged by the cross. The world is now judged by the cross and this brings glory to God. So what this means is that the evil of humanity will now be witnessed like never before through the crucifixion of Jesus. Humanity's total depravity will be displayed through the torture and murder of the perfect and holy Son of God. And also humanity's depravity will be revealed through the way that people respond to this. This is what's incredible. People then and people now are hard to this. This doesn't affect them on any level. They see the cross and say, look at that cursed man. There's no way Jesus is God. I'm not subject to this God. I'm the judge who decides whether Jesus is worthy to be worshipped. That's West, Western civilization. That's our mindset. We need to be humbled. I'm nobody. Jesus is exalted. But our, but our human depravity is is revealed through the cross. And it's through this that judgment comes, okay? Jesus on the cross judges people. The cross of Christ divides believers from non-believers. The cross of Christ divides those who have forgiveness in Jesus and those who do not have forgiveness in Jesus. This is not the final judgment that we often hear about uh, even in our society or that we read about in Revelation. The final judgment is at the end of the world in which God will declare our eternal destiny either with him because we've trusted in Christ, we've been forgiven by God for our sins, or with Satan and his demons in the lake of fire. 
See, what you believe about God is really important. <laughs> what we believe specifically about Jesus on the cross reveals whether we are for him or whether we are against him. We don't have to wait until heaven to know whether we're saved from our sin or condemned by our sin. We just have to ask, what do I believe about Christ crucified? There's the judgment. Have I trusted in this Christ? Do I believe that he's God? Do I see that I'm a sinner and I need his grace? I am guilty and I need a savior. Do I understand that this salvation that Jesus offers me is entirely a gift of grace? Which means that in my own being, I can do nothing to be good enough now for God. I've messed up my life. I'm a sinner. The only way I can be saved if it's God in his grace and mercy, if he is gracious and merciful, reaches out to me and says, here's a way for you to be saved. I will suffer and die for you. Do I believe that? If our faith in Christ crucified is genuine, then God judges us not guilty right now. Okay? The judgment is now. Because on the cross, Jesus has removed your sin, and it says that you have been, past tense, justified in Christ. You have been declared not guilty of any wrongdoing in the sight of God forever because of Christ. But if we don't humble ourselves, if, if the Holy Spirit does not help us do this, we need to pray for our friends, we need to pray for ourselves for humility, then our eternal judgment is just reinforced. It's reinforced by the cross. Our suffering will not be removed from us. We don't have salvation. There is no hope. There is no Savior except for Christ on the cross. God is glorified through Jesus' death on the cross because the world is now judged by the cross. Second, Jesus says in verse 31, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. So Satan, who is a fallen angel in rebellion against God, he is the ruler of this world who Jesus is talking about. And God will be glorified through Jesus' death on the cross because the cross will be the decisive blow that removes Satan's eternal power over us. Okay. Now let's remember a few things. God is all-powerful. Satan is not. Okay. It's not God and Satan like this. Okay. It's God here, Satan here. And he allows Satan to exist um, as he does on earth for the time being. But he only has temporary power. It's only because God allows it. For instance, even in the book of, in the jo book of Job, we see that uh, Satan has to go to God and ask permission to, to bring calamity on Job. And God grants him permission. Satan is not the most powerful being in existence. He's not equal to God. God is infinitely powerful. He is holy, set apart, different from any other created thing, and he, everything in existence is under his authority. Now, second, the Bible says that uh, the final judgment, um, at the final judgment when Jesus returns to earth, at that point, Jesus will condemn Satan. Um, he will cast Satan into the lake of fire along with his demons and all who have rebelled against God and not trusted in Jesus for salvation. 
Uh, we'll read that in Revelation. So, when Jesus says here that Satan will be cast out, what does that mean? He's not saying that Satan will no longer be in the world because we are tempted by Satan right now. We're accused by Satan right now. Satan works among us right now. He also doesn't mean that uh, right now is when Satan will be cast into the lake of fire. Those things are yet to come. What does he mean? Well, Jesus means, again, we're talking about the cross, that on the cross he would defeat Satan by taking away Satan's eternal power over all of humanity. Satan's power, how is Satan powerful? Satan's power lays in the fact that uh, humanity is enslaved to sin. And we can't escape sin on our own, is what Scripture says. Satan is our master because we are chained to sin and to its consequences. And when we sin, we are acting like Satan. That's why Jesus said in John 8:44, you are of your father the devil. Your will is to do your father's desires. So Satan... Uh, his ground for owning us, his grounds for accusing us before God is our sin. This is why the cross is so important because it is on the cross that Jesus killed our sin, okay? Jesus killed the sin of all who trust in him for salvation on the cross. He became our sin. He bore our sins in his physical body on the cross and when his physical body was killed our sin was killed with Jesus Christ crucified is what cast Satan out of his position of authority over Jesus's church Satan is no longer our master if we belong to Jesus now he is not our master Satan is no longer our father God the father is our father because we've trusted in the Son. And the ironic thing is that Satan thought that he would have ultimate victory over Jesus when Jesus was killed on the cross. This is how awesome Jesus is. Because of Jesus' awesome divine power, he flipped this torture device created by the Romans on its head. He used this cross as the means by which he frees us from Satan. Jesus uses his death on the cross to dethrone Satan from the position that he had over us. And yes, Satan still attacks us, he tempts us, he accuses us. But just like I told that little church in Swaziland, the cross of Christ has turned Satan into a toothless lion. He roars at us, he may scare us, but he is eternally powerless over us. Jesus' sacrifice for us broke our chains to sin and to Satan forever. Amen. God, God is glorified through Jesus' death on the cross because through the cross, Jesus casts out the ruler of this world from his authority over Christians. And third, verse 32 to 33, it says, uh, and, and when I am lifted up from the earth or sorry, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Jesus uses this phrase, lifted up, uh, to prophetically tell the crowd that he would be killed. He would be lifted up onto the cross. And 
He says that by being nailed to that cross and lifted up, he would draw all people to himself. It does not mean that every human being individually will be drawn to Jesus and saved. Because uh, we know that just from the immediate context. Jesus said in the previous sentence that the cross is going to judge and condemn much of humanity. But Christ uh, on the cross, Christ on the cross, draws all people to Jesus in the sense that people from all people groups will be drawn to Jesus. Just like these Greeks, think about the context here, the Greeks who had come to the Jewish temple, just like these came to see Jesus in this passage, there will be people of every tribe and every nation that will be drawn to Jesus. In Revelation 7, 9 to 10, the Apostle John, who wrote this gospel, also describes his vision of Christ's return. He writes, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. According to Jesus in John 12, 32, how will this multitude from every nation and tribe and peoples and languages be drawn to Jesus? Through the cross of Christ. It's through the message and inherent power of Christ crucified on the cross that people come to trust in the Lord. This is why the cross has to be central to our gospel. It is central to the gospel that has been handed down to us. This is why we tell people about the cross of Christ, because it is what people need to hear in order to turn to Christ and to be forgiven for their sins. Paul writes in Romans 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of this message of Jesus Christ, crucified and resurrected, because this message is the power that saves people. Believing the message of Christ crucified and resurrected is the way to salvation. And Jesus says that this multitude of people, which is his church, will be drawn to him through his cross. It's always interesting to see the way different churches define the gospel. You would think there would be more clarity on it, but there's not. And granted, there are different levels to God's kingdom and the gospel, but at the core of the gospel, uh, if you want to see what the Apostles believed, if you want to see, read 1 Corinthians 15. Read one verse where Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, For I resolved to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's the core of the gospel because it's the truth of the gospel and it is the power that we need to hear and believe in order to be saved. So make sure we get that right. The gospel is, and the reason I say that is because Honestly, a lot of churches get it wrong. Um, the gospel is the good news that we are here to bring justice to the world and change this place so that it's heaven on earth. That's not the gospel. That's a, you know, a wonderful thing. Lord, honor, let, let it be on earth as it is in heaven. But that's not the gospel. 
The gospel is that Jesus died for your sins so that no matter how screwed up this world is in your life might be, you can be saved through the cross of Christ. That's the gospel. That's, that's the good news. Um, he says, Jesus says that this multitude of people is his church. It will be drawn to him through the cross. <clears throat> you need to know about this word drawn here. It's the same word that Jesus used in John 6.44 when he said, uh, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. In Greek, this word draw refers to um, resistance that is overcome by a superior force. It's used in other contexts to describe fishermen who are drawing in their nets. They're heavy nets. The fish want to stay in the water. They're pulling them into the boat. Okay? It's used to refer to a soldier drawing out a heavy sword out of his scabbard. Um, or a woman at the well drawing water out. The gravity is pushing the water down and pulling the water up. Now, this is what it means. In the same way God graciously draws us to himself with a power, even though we are resistant to him in the flesh. I mean, if there's one thing, I mean, there's some things that are really clear in John's gospel. This is really clear, that people in our flesh do not want Jesus. It says it over and over and over again. But God, in his grace, draws us with a powerful effect to himself. He draws us even though we are resistant to him. He draws us and he saves us through this message of Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected. God is glorified through Jesus' death on the cross because it is the means through which Jesus powerfully draws his church to himself. God glorifies himself through Jesus' death on the cross. What are those three ways? By bringing judgment on the world, by casting out the ruler of the world, and by drawing all peoples to himself. And the suffering that Jesus endured for his church and the death that he died for his church was horrific, to put it in Jesus' own words. It, it was horrific because the consequences for our sin are horrific. We can't forget that. But Christ's substitutionary death on the cross was also horrific because crucifying the perfect Son of God is the most abhorrent sin that's ever been committed. It's the worst. But Jesus was committed to glorifying God the Father while at the same time showing us the full expression of his love and grace toward us. And so he said, Father, your will be done. Father, you be glorified in this. And so he stayed in Jerusalem, where he'd be crucified a few days later. And it's because of this love that we see in the cross of Christ, this love that God has for us. It's through our believing in this love and trusting in Jesus that God is glorified, and at the same time, we are eternally blessed. I encourage all of us to talk to the Lord today, to celebrate what Jesus has done for us, to think about that, to consider it, as we consider the sacrifice that men and women have given to protect our country, and we also think about the sacrifice that God made.
protect us. May he be glorified. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, uh, we thank you for this word, and we just admit, God, that we need you. We, we are so in need of you, and um, we thank you for what you have done to come into the world to be lifted up for the um, punishment that we deserve. Thank you that through the cross, you forgive us and make us not guilty in God the Father's sight. You make us born again as we trust in that. Thank you that you rose from the dead. Thank you that this gospel message is the power to save. Thank you for whoever preached that to us or told us about it so that we might be saved. For those of our, our uh, peers maybe in this room or our family members who have heard the gospel maybe many times, please soften their hearts, Lord. Please make them born again, God. Enable them to hear this message of Christ crucified and to be utterly broken over it. To not make light of what you have done for us, to not make light of your holiness and your glory, Jesus. We pray, God, for those who don't know you in our community, for those who don't know you at our jobs and, and around the world, and it's hard to know exactly how to love them um, and what to say to them at the right time. We pray for your leading. We pray that you would give us divine opportunities to say the right thing at the right time to people. Fill us with courage um, to do that. And uh, we just want to see you glorified. And we know that as we preach this gospel of Christ crucified and resurrected, other people will find eternal joy in glorifying you too. And your glory will be multiplied. Thank you, Lord. Um, please help us to understand and to meditate and grasp some of these weighty concepts that really are hard for us to grasp. We love you, Jesus, and, and thank you so much, God, that uh, even though we deserve to be cast away from you because of our sin, you've reached out to us to save us, and your cross alone is our grounds for salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.